Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, it is my delight to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, we'll look at verses 12 through 16. Uh, just this morning, Pastor David gave us a, a stirring message of the reminder, the effect Jesus Christ has upon the life of a sinner. We were shown how Saul of Tarsus, a terrorist, becomes Paul. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and an apostle. Before we read, uh, let me uh, entreat you to come with me in prayer before the Lord our God to, to bless His reading and preaching of the Word. So let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank You that You have given us this Word, and it is worthy of all of our trust, because it is Your very Word. And You do not lie, and there is no shadow of lie or change in You. We thank You that when You tell us that You can cleanse and pardon all of our sins, we know that the sins of yesterday, today, and even tomorrow are washed away in the blood of Christ. Father, we would see Jesus this evening. We pray that You would be pleased by the words of my mouth, as feeble as they are, and that the saints here would be encouraged to turn to Christ for their satisfaction, for their healing, and for their forgiveness. And Father, we pray that your name would be glorified, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We are about to hear the words of our Creator God, so let me invite you to please stand as creatures who are hearing the voice of their Creator. Please listen now as I read the very Word of God. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. While he, that is it, Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the words of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. Uh, just a short time ago, uh, Pastor David finished a long two-year journey taking us through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it was some four years and four months ago uh, since we have been in this passage. This is the Gospel account of the beloved doctor, the beloved physician, Luke. And the sermons, as well as the Gospel, were meant to get, persuade us, to give us full certainty and assurance of our faith. For we do not have faith in a cult or a myth or some fantasy. No, we have faith in the real, historic Jesus Christ. And this gospel, even this passage here, is a, a faithful friend calling us to trust and to believe. Well, this evening I would like us to return to this brief encounter that we find in our text. And like Luke, my desire is that we would see the heart, the heart of our Savior better, and that we would know and even be drawn to Him uh, in love. If we are honest with ourselves, then even this past week we know that we have failed we have fallen short of the glory of God, and we need this encouragement. And so let us turn our attention from ourselves and be comforted in the steadfast love of Christ. We will see three things in these five verses. Three things. So we will begin with our first one, desperate faith. A desperate faith in verses 12 through 13. 
As we look at verse 12, we enter into the history of Jesus' ministry in the Galilean cities. And this city is unnamed. We're not told the name of this city, which it was. But Jesus has said of his own ministry that he came to serve and not to be served. He came to seek and save the lost. Already in Luke chapter 4, after Jesus' victory over Satan in the wilderness, we saw Jesus begin his ministry, his public ministry, by teaching in the synagogues. And so we, see, we have seen time and again him enter synagogue after synagogue, expounding the scriptures. With that in mind, we can suspect what he's come to this unnamed town to do. He's come seeking the lost, the broken, the lame, and the sick, the needy. But in verse 12, we notice something a bit different. Look there again with me. We notice there there came a man full of leprosy. Now, the Greek is a little more shocking. It literally reads, Behold, look out, a man filled up with leprosy. It's like in the movies when something bad is about to happen. There's a shock and surprise. The tension is there. And it's because he's a leper. Now, let me remind us what a leper is. A leper is a man or a woman who is afflicted and sick with a disease most often of the skin. And we're told that he's a man full of leprosy. This is not some spot on his skin that he could just go and hope for a quick fix, go and maybe be quarantined for just a little bit and, and get out in a week or so. No, there was, there was no hope of healing for this man. There was no going away of this disease. He was beyond human help. He was in the advanced stage of a terminal disease. And here we see the personality of our, our gospel writer. It's coming out here. You remember Luke is called the beloved physician, and he is giving us eyewitness details. And their details Luke is uniquely qualified to give us. He would have marveled at this encounter. The spotless, clean Jesus is being approached by this completely sick man. And for the Jewish culture, a Jewish audience, this would mean, this would mean that this leper was unclean. He could not come near people. This would have been a surprise. He had to be cut off. He had to be alone in desolate places away from the people of God. J.C. Ryle says of this disease, of all the diseases for an Israelite, this man had the worst. It affected every part of his body. It causes sores and and decays of sin, corruption of the blood and and rottenness of the bones. And perhaps you you know that this disease can bring about a terrible numbness in yourself that you would not realize if you even cut yourself. And then the infection and disease would spread further without our awareness. And what a perfect description of sin, of what sin does to us. It is like a disease that infects us to every part of our body, causes sores and infections. And and David even says in Psalm 32, you remember we sung it this morning, that when he did not confess sin, his bones wasted away. They rotted. Sin numbs our consciences so that we are not aware when we slip further and further away from the love of our Father. Isaiah even likens us to a leprous person. He says we are like oozing wounds in Isaiah 1, from the sole of our foot even to the crown of our head. We are nothing but sores, raw wounds. So you see here, we are all like this leper. We have all sinned and are even under the effects of sin, of indwelling sin. We are all filled up and full of this disease. So perhaps we can sympathize with this man can know something of what he felt, what his life was like. Just a few years ago, did we not all go through a period of isolation where we all felt cut off and lonely, missing the people of God? 
But even on a more day-to-day level, perhaps a more contemporary this-week level, perhaps you know this in your relationships. You know distance created by sin, and I'm sure you've experienced this. In our marriages, do we not experience distance when there is sin? Covenant children, when you sin against your siblings, perhaps your friends, you are no longer close. You are no longer best friends. There's distance. Parents, when we sin against our children, they do not feel like they can come close to us or be near us or that they even love us. Or perhaps you are dealing with some illness that has kept you from being with the people of God. We all are to see ourselves in this leper's place. For our lives are lived in, if they are lived in sin, they are cut off from the love of our Father and of His saints. And if you have ever felt this sort of despair, then look again with me at verse 12. In his most pitiable, desperate state, this leper looks up and he sees Jesus. In his most pitiable state, he, hear, he sees the man who can save him. And what blessed words, what blessed words this man he sees Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he falls down on his face before him. And this is a posture of humility and honor. He's begging the Lord, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And notice what he calls Jesus. The poor man has not attended temple worship in a long time. He is no spiritual leader. And yet he knows that he needs to call Jesus Lord. This is not just a a master or how we might say in the South, a a sir, a, a title of honor. No, he is calling Jesus his Adonai, his God. When other scribes and Pharisees come to see Jesus, what do they call him? They call him teacher. They call him teacher. They who know the scriptures the best, they refuse to call him the Messiah, the Son of God. No, they try to bring Jesus down to their own level. They try to call him teacher. It is interesting that some modern evangelicals today want to call Jesus just a good moral teacher. Perhaps they don't realize they're copying the bad guys. But the response of faith is to go to Christ and to call him Lord. This man's faith makes him go to Jesus because he recognizes his need and he begs with him. And why? Why does this man beg with Jesus? It's because every time he looks down at his hands, he's aware of his need. This man lives with his disease. He has constant reminders. He knows his need and that makes him humble. And in his humility, he asks Jesus for healing. And let's notice how he asks. He asks not in a presuming manner, but he does ask in faith. This leper has no doubt that Jesus can heal him. He says, you can make me well, in verse 12. He says, if, if you are willing. He throws himself upon the willingness of the Lord. He does not know whether or not he's going to walk away cleansed. He does not presume that it's just God's job to heal. It's just God's job to forgive. But he does trust. He trusts that Jesus has the ability to make him whole. Now, we might look at that and say, good job. This leper gets it, but let's ask of ourselves, do we see our need of Christ? Are we as urgent in going to him in prayer? Do we come to Jesus at all or often? We have far more reason to beg Christ for mercy. If you are here tonight and the Holy Spirit has awakened your eyes to the blackness of our own sin, then let us be those who regularly, repeatedly go to Christ. If you have ever felt that desperate weight of loneliness. If you've ever felt cut off and distant, if Satan has ever accused you of your sin and rubbed your face in it, let us be 
Let us have this faith. Let us be men of desperate faith. Let us be women who are persistent in prayer. Let us be seeking the Lord. And why? Well, notice secondly, dynamic power. We can be seeking the Lord because he has power. We'll see this point in verses 13 and 14. We've already seen that this man is far off, far off from the people of God. He, if he had any friends at all, they would have been other lepers. His life is at the bottom. And to all, this man is revolting and disgusting. To walk by him too close would have been an offense to the eyes and, and certainly to the nose. And what is Jesus' response to a man like this? Well, look again in verse 13. Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him. Now, the Gospel of Mark's account adds, adds to this interaction that Jesus is moved with compassion. That is, Jesus is stirred up inside. He's really affected, and he's acting out of genuine emotion and feeling. And as a, just a little aside here, let me add, some people want to say that disease and sickness are just a natural part of life, a natural part of the created order. Some people want to say that this is just a way to, to weed out the feeble and the weak and to eliminate the inferior so that only the strongest and fittest will survive. Perhaps you encounter this in the theory of evolution. But brothers and sisters, that is so unhuman. Disease is not God's design for life. And so Jesus is moved with compassion because he knows this man is under the curse of sin. And he touches this leprous man. Jesus' clean, healthy fingers and palm touch skin that is rotten and putrefying. And he does so from the heart. Think about what it would have meant for this leper. He had probably not shaken hands with anyone in years. He never had a reassuring pat on the back or let alone a hug, hand around the shoulder. Jesus comes into this man's life and breaks the pattern of curse, touches the untouchable. And that is Jesus' mission. He came with power to save. He came with healing in his wings. His purpose was to bind up the broken, to make the wounded whole, to cleanse the leper, to make the lame walk and the dumb speak and the dead to rise again, Isaiah 35. So Jesus reaches out his hand to be a friend to the friendless. Do we ever feel like we have no friend, like we are forgotten? Do you ever feel like you are an afterthought, expendable? Have you ever been in the throes under the weight of despair? Have you ever been disgusted with yourself? If you have, then surely we can sympathize with this man. and Surely we can be encouraged by the one who comes to him. For Jesus is the one who comes near to ones like this man like you, like I. He comes near to the weary and to the downtrodden. He says to you, I will be a friend to you. I will be a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I will help you. I will be your refuge. I will understand you when you suffer. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he speaks thus. He speaks in this manner to the leper in verse 13. Notice he says, I will be clean. And you remember the leper had asked, if you will, you can make me clean. Remember, the leper has no doubt that Jesus has the ability, the divine power to do this. He only asks that Jesus would be willing. What is Jesus' response? I will. His words are not full of disgust and, and judgment. Jesus is not helping this man in a way to, he's not speaking to help this man and move on. He's not treating him like a hospital bed or a number. His words are full of tenderness. 
And we know that Jesus doesn't have to speak a word. You remember when the woman with the flow of blood comes up behind Jesus in the crowd and and touches him, and she's healed immediately. Jesus doesn't speak a word. But notice how Jesus is answering this man's question in a wonderfully compassionate way. The leper says, will you? Jesus says, I will. There's a mirror. This leper has need, and Jesus has the full supply for his need. Then Jesus commands the leper to be cleansed. In one word, Jesus issues the command. In the same word, Jesus grants the power of cleansing. And this leprous body is restored. And there's immediate healing. Did you catch that? There's immediate healing. There's no gradual process of, of bed rest. He's not, this man is not having to take a whole pharmacy of drugs to get better. There's complete, immediate healing. One minute, this man was full of leprosy from his head to his toe. The next minute, his limbs are restored fully and completely. He no longer smells of rottenness, but he's clean. And notice that Jesus, in doing this, is both showing compassion and speaking compassion to this man's heart. Jesus' words are revealing his heart towards sinners. He is willing to come near to sinners, even the worst of us. He is willing to enter into our life at our level and even to speak words to us that we can understand, to speak words of power. This is the Almighty God removing the curse of sin, casting it as far as the east is from the west. Another little aside, certain groups in our day, the Marxists and the feminist scholars of our times, they they cannot abide or stand such instances of power as this. For they hate power imbalances when one person has more power than the other. So consequently, they hate all of these passages about Jesus' power. They do not like this imbalance because they are afraid. They will not kiss the sun. They rant and rave and say that any power is inherently corrupt, evil, and power is only used by the rich to oppress those who are already downtrodden. And yet this passage here stands immovable in the face of their raging. For here is the greatest power imbalance ever. This man is weakened by disease, rejected by society, and he's standing before the creator of body and soul. And Jesus, the Son of God, is holding this man's life in his hands. And yet the divine power of God is undoing corruption. The power of God is here used only, as always, for the good of his people. Never for corruption, never for our harm. He is showing that he is a God of compassion as much as he is a God of power. His heart is outstretched towards sinners to save them, to bind up their brokenness and to redeem them from the curse, from slavery to sin. Now, if you are one of the people that think you are good enough, that you are a good person, that you have not done all this and said all that, then Jesus' words are are not for you. If you think that you can make it to heaven with just a little bit of help from God, then these words are not for you. Or, and brothers, my conscience stings as much as, as yours. If we have grown tired or weary, if we have become bored or cold in hearing the gospel, then these words are not for us but against us. But if we know our need of a Savior, if we have truly vowed our vows, if we have truly said in our church vows of membership that we see ourselves as sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His wrath, and without hope except in His Son, 
then let us hear these words of Jesus and be comforted. Let us come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness, for healing, for being restored into his favor. And let us hear him say, as a friend of sinners, I will be clean. But notice more. Notice more power with me in verse 14. Jesus does not just heal this man and then move on. He doesn't just tell him, you can go back to your desolate places now. No, Jesus restores this man and then he tells him to tell no one, but go straight away to the temple and present himself to the priest and offer a sacrifice for cleansing and thus obey the law of Moses. Jesus did not heal this man's disease so that he could go on living the same life, a life cut off because the power of Jesus in his life, this man is now redeemed to be restored to the people of God, to be restored to worship. When Jesus comes into the life of the sinner, he comes to save the soul, to worship, to speak his glory. The Father is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. And the work of Christ is to redeem just such a people, to ransom them and to present them as holy and blameless. But notice something else with me. Notice who the miracle is for. Did you catch that in verse 14? Jesus told this man to go and show himself to the priest. Now, who hates Jesus the most? It's the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet here is Jesus sending them clear, indisputable proof. Did you notice that? He was to be a proof to them. Proof that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus' dynamic power here, his divine power, his healing, should have caused the priest to accept him, to receive him, and to worship him. Jesus is sending them a redeemed, healed, cleansed life to testify to his power. But wait, there's more. Even the law, even the law of purification that this man was to obey, that Jesus is commanding this man to keep, is pointing to his Messiahship, to his work of redemption. If we go back to Leviticus 13, I know it's my favorite chapter too. We read the laws that this man was to go and keep. We read of the sacrifice he had to make in order to be restored. If a man was cleansed from leprosy, he was to bring a sacrifice to the Lord and to present two birds. One bird was to be killed so that the other would be released. And the cleansed man was to be sprinkled in the blood of the one who was killed. Now, I know you know that the law points forward to Christ, but here is a crystal clear example. In order for there to be forgiveness of sin, there must be two, and one must be killed so the other would be released. And the man who brings the sacrifice must be cleansed in the blood. And brothers and sisters, we are that unclean people who need a sacrifice, for our lives have been lived far off from God. A great chasm is laid between man and God. In order for us to approach the Creator who is holy, we must not come alone. We must bring two. And the spotless one must die, must be killed, so that we who are soiled and stained may live. And we must be covered, sealed in that blood. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters here today, do you have a second with you? As Christ Jesus said, I will be your second. I will die so that you might live. Do you come to the Father with Christ? Have you been sprinkled clean with the waters of baptism, your union with Christ, so that you are now marked out as worshipers of Christ in spirit and in truth? 
If the answer is yes, then it is only because our Lord is compassionate. It's only because he had mercy upon us when we were unlovable. We are to be grateful to this Savior and direct our praise and thanks to him alone. Only because Christ loved us while we were still disgusting under the disease of sin can we sing with the hymn writer that we have been ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. But if the answer is no, then I urge you this evening to pray to Jesus, who is able and willing to heal you, who is and has shown himself to be a God who is a friend of the sinner. And that brings us to our third point, devotion, devotion pattern. Devotion pattern in verses 15 through 16. Jesus has instructed this man to tell no one but to go straight away to the priest. But we do not see him go to the priest. Rather, verse 15, we see a mob. And notice the language of this verse. Notice that Luke says, but, ev- but now even more the report about him went abroad. Now, we cannot say all of the reasons why Jesus told this man not to tell anyone because the Bible doesn't say all of the reasons. But I think we can say from the consequences, Jesus was very wise to give this command. He was savvy. He knew what was coming. Look at the end of verse 15. A great crowd gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he had been a most popular man. When he spoke, he spoke with the authority of God and caught people's attentions. And surely, if people were being healed, if miracles were being performed, that would turn heads even today in an age of skepticism. But this crowd is not coming to believe in Jesus. They're not coming to treat him as their Lord and King. They're coming for more entertainment. They're coming to treat Jesus like a lucky rabbit's foot and to get things out of Jesus. Perhaps this should cause us to send a penetrating eye towards ourselves. Is this how we treat Jesus? How is our prayer life? Do we only pray when we want or need something? Or do we worship Christ and and long to be in communion and fellowship with Him? If we look at the Gospels as a whole, we see many events where Jesus is popular, summoning crowds of four or 5,000. But in the end, how many remain? 120. These people are not coming to serve Christ. They only want more entertainment, more speeches against the scribes and Pharisees, more miracles to feed us, more me, me. The greed of the crowd draws people to Christ. And Jesus is no fool. He knows why they are coming. So he does not pursue his own fame and glory, does not want their empty, selfish praise. For remember what kind of crown Jesus came to wear. A crown of thorns, not a crown of popularity. He will not be distracted from his mission. And so in verse 16, in verse 16, we see him withdraw, withdraw to desolate places. Now, there are many things we could say about this, but let us just see this evening the great exchange that has happened in this text. Who is in the desolate places in verse 12? Who is cut off and far removed from the people of God in verse 12? It was the leper. It was the leper. And now in verse 16, Jesus is far off. Now in verse 16, he is in the place of criminals and the socially unfit. But Jesus is not in the place of this because he has done these things. He is no criminal. 
He is not unclean. He, he has never done anything that is worthy of accusation. And yet, the Son of God changes places with this leper. He surrenders his place and takes the place of the sick man. He takes up his residence, his dwelling in the desolate places, and he does so of his own will. But from verse 16, also, notice what Jesus is doing, what he's doing in these desolate places. Jesus, Jesus is praying. The tyranny of the urgent is no excuse for Jesus to neglect private times of prayer, devotion to his Father. Jesus could have been spending all of his time gathering more people to himself, more disciples, by giving this crowd what they wanted, by, by giving them what they were after. But instead, he's seeking his heavenly Father. J.C. Ryle puts this so well, and I say this for, for my sake as much as yours. He encourages us. He says that the most successful workmen of the Lord's vineyard are those who are like their master, who are much and often upon their knees. Jesus is showing devotion. He's patterning devotion to his mission, which is to be the Messiah. He's patterning his need, the Lord's need, to have communion with his Father. Jesus is here alone in desolate places, not because he deserved it, because you remember he had compassion. He had compassion on a sick man. That is why he is here. And yet he's still being faithful to do the will of the Father, to obey perfectly, to have communion with the one who sent him. Luke is showing us here that Jesus knows what the mission is. He knows what the work of the Messiah is. It's to be cut off, to be a man who is despised, rejected, acquainted with sorrows and much grief. It is the work of the Messiah to take the place of the disgusting sinner and even to die in their place. It is the work of the Messiah to be humiliated and cast out and to bear our shame. It is the work of the Messiah to bear the guilty verdict, the diagnosis of death for sin, and to, as Martin Luther would say, become the biggest sinner of the whole world as he bears all of our uncleanness. Here in our passage, we see Jesus is a man of great compassion. He welcomes desperate sinners with desperate faith. Here we see Jesus as the Son of God, able to reverse the curse of sin and sickness. Here we see Jesus is able to heal and to restore this man and to bring him into the worship of God, his Father. And here we see Jesus take the place of this man in the wilderness. From our brief passage let us see that Jesus welcomes humble sinners, needy sinners, and that he will never cast us out, those who come to him and trust him. Let us see our Savior better from this passage, and it is my prayer that he will be to you a friend, a friend of sinners as we have sung. So let us be comforted in his friendship. Please pray with me. Our Father, we confess that there is nothing in us that would cause you to love us, that would cause you to send your Son, your only Son, to die in our place. And so, Father, we praise you and we sing hallelujah. What a Savior that he would come to die for one such as us. And Father, we confess, even as we confess our unworthiness, we do confess our need for Christ. We need more of him. And so we pray that we would be a people who are coming to him in prayer, even this next week, that as Pastor John prayed, that we would be 
continually searching Christ in our scriptures, in our Bibles. Father, we pray that this great work of cleansing would be applied to us more and more through the power of the Holy Spirit, even as you have promised. And Father, we pray all of these things in faith, because you have told us so in your word. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.